Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the extraordinary story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode, Everything Old is New Again, the Modern Era of Broadway, Part 2. In my last episode, I outlined how a new wave of brash young songwriters swept aside the golden age and ushered in Broadway's modern era with shows such as Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, and Two Gentlemen of Verona. But surprisingly, in the midst of this ongoing triumph and ascendance of the rock musical, the biggest hit of 1971 was a revival of the Silver Age musical comedy No No Nanette. That's right, the Vincent Humans musical that had introduced the songs T for Two and I Wanna Be Happy way back in the Roaring Twenties. The star of the show was dancer Ruby Keeler, whose most recent appearance on Broadway had been in the 1929 musical Showgirl, which had been produced by Ziegfeld and had songs by George Gershwin. Soon after that show closed, she went to Hollywood, and in the early 1930s, she became a big movie star in a series of Warner Brothers film musicals, all choreographed by Busby Berkeley, beginning with the smash hit 42nd Street. By 1970, Keeler had been retired for many years, but a producer named Harry Rigby persuaded her to come back to Broadway. With a heavily reworked book, sparkling new orchestrations and arrangements, and a snazzy Art Deco-inspired set and costume design, this reincarnation of No No Nanette was billed as the new 1925 musical and it became a smash hit, running for 861 performances and winning four Tony Awards for choreography, costume design, and for two of its stars, Helen Gallagher and another vintage movie star, comedian Patsy Kelly. And after years of it being almost entirely absent from Broadway, Nanette brought tap dancing back into fashion in a major way. Most significantly, Nanette fanned a mania for everything and anything that recalled the music, style, and glamour of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. The press dubbed this phenomenon the nostalgia craze, and it quickly spread into every aspect of American life. Tiffany lamps, Mickey Mouse watches, vintage comic books, and old Coca-Cola signs became high-priced collector's items. Original Art Deco furniture, sculpture, and artwork became coveted antiques, and much of 1970s and 80s modern architecture, interior, and graphic design strongly echoed the Art Deco period. So before we look at how the nostalgia craze continued to flourish on Broadway, I want to look back at exactly where it came from, what artistic, social, and cultural forces came together to spark this unlikely phenomenon. 
One of the roots of the nostalgia craze reaches back into the 1960s when young people began noticing and pointing out the similarities between their era and the freewheeling, rebellious spirit of the 1920s, a time when skirts got shorter, drug use was widespread, and young people rejected the sexual and social hang-ups of the previous generation. This resulted in most 1960s rock bands and singers including material from the vaudeville era in their repertoire, or they wrote songs that sounded just like them. For example, the Beatles' When I'm 64. Give me your answer, fill in a form, mine forevermore. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? And they ransacked their grandparents' attics and thrift stores for vintage fashions that would go with those songs. Although I am technically a baby boomer, I come at the tail end of the boom, and I wanted to talk to someone who was there in the thick of it during this period. Luckily, our resident expert, Albert Evans, graduated college in the class of 1969. I recently had a chance to talk with him about those tumultuous times. Hello, Albert. The reason I wanted to talk to you today is I'm trying to pin down exactly what the origins of this nostalgia craze of the 1970s are. And I think, you know, we have to look back, obviously, to the 1960s to get there. And you were certainly around during that period, so I wanted to get your take on it. And I think you, like me, were very influenced by what came from the nostalgia craze. We were, I was certainly enraptured by it. Yes, so was I. The 1960s were my years in high school and college. Of course, it was the period of the youth rebellion and, you know, the baby boom and all that. When this nostalgia craze really comes out of this youth rebellion in a strange way, I think people later saw it as sort of reactionary against it, but it actually comes from young people rebelling against the status quo. Yeah, sort of the their parents, of course, were children of the Depression and the, the Second World War. What we call the greatest generation today. Yeah. And they they actually preferred, having gone through all that, I think they wanted nice, placid music. They wanted Perry Como, and they wanted modern things. things they wanted w- new, right? They, they wanted want- new. They wanted things that would not remind them of the Depression and of the war. So, of course, the kids, I think to annoy them, they were into rock and roll, but they also got into nostalgia, but it wasn't their own nostalgia. It was what should have been their parents' nostalgia. It's really their grandparents' era that it went back to, the 1920s and the 1930s. Yeah. When their parents were children, but their parents now felt that that was old-fashioned and out of date, and they wanted to move into yeah, the future. Yeah, they wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah, it was so it was a way really like rock and roll music. It was another way to annoy the older generation. Yeah, and so the kids would go to thrift shops and pick up these ratty old clothes. Right, and these would be like dresses and suits and things and from the 1920s and the 30s. Exactly. And platform shoes from the 1940s, things like that. And really that attitude then I think went mainstream with Barbara Streisand. When she was doing club work very early in her career, she really couldn't afford designer gowns. So she went to the thrift shops and she decked herself out. And she even had a signature song about it, an old song, of course, called Secondhand Rose. A song from Fanny Bryce back in the teens. Exactly. She made that part of her personality and her persona. And again, it was a rebellious thing. Right. And it was also a gay thing because... You know, gays have always been to the camp attitude, which at that time, it sort of meant something is so bad, so outdated, that it's actually fabulous and good. And let's do this. You know, let's dress in old feather boas and cloche hats and raccoon coats. 
Exactly. And you mentioned feather boas. They were like a new thing sort of emerged in the 60s. Of course, they were a very old thing. Yeah, and, and to mix these styles, to mix like bell-bottom jeans with fe- feather boas. Exactly, which Janis Joplin did. Yeah. Another root of the nostalgia craze extends back even further to the mid-1950s when local television stations were being established in every city in America. They had hours and hours of time to fill every day beyond the programming that the networks were providing, so they started buying packages of old movies from the major film studios to fill out their schedules. These included many films from the 1930s and 40s that we now consider to be classics, most of which had not been seen by anyone for decades. Every day, an outstanding motion picture selected from the WHPQ television library of over 1,200 titles. During the 1960s, movies made up 25% of local programming, and a new generation fell in love with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy, Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and Dorothy L'Amour. And not just on television, but also on college campuses all across the country. Albert and I discussed that phenomenon as well. So I went to a very small college in a very small town, and we really didn't have a movie theater. So we depended on the College Art Film Society that once a week would get like a 16-millimeter print of some old movie or like the new French New Wave movies. So we, we had a diet of like Godard and Antonioni and Bergman and uh, Fellini, that sort of thing mixed with Marx Brothers movies and W.C. Fields was very big and also silent movies. And mixed in with those was some very strange old Warner Brothers movies, musicals from the early 30s, directed by Busby Berkeley, this mad visionary who would build these enormous, very abstract production numbers, mainly built out of girls, but with just things that could never be done on a real stage, although they would always be um, framed by a real stage. Because they're all backstage musicals. They're all backstage musicals. Yeah, so we supposedly would start happening stage. backstage at a Broadway show. And yeah. of course, we're talking about 42nd Street and Footlight Parade and Gold Diggers of 1933 and Gold Diggers on Parade and mm-hmm. that whole series of movies created by Busby Berkeley. And so, as I said, they would start realistic. And then they would go into some strange other world where there were worlds inside of worlds. You know, you would go to a big swimming pool that would turn into a fountain, that would turn into a forest, that would turn... You were constantly going inside other worlds. So, again, it was very druggy. It was very trippy in on already, much less in a time period where most people going to college are experimenting with drugs. Yeah. So we loved these movies and these... We got to be big fans of people like Ruby Keeler, the ingenue of the early 30s, and um, Dick Powell, the tenor, and Jimmy Cagney was in a lot of these movies, not in his gangster mode, but in his tap dancing mode. So you mentioned camp, and camp is something that emerges in the mainstream in the 1970s as really part of this nostalgia craze, but of course it's going on way before that. It's going on in the gay scene And in the theater scene, even back in the 50s with shows like Little Mary Sunshine and The Boyfriend, these are all have very strong camp elements and are spoofing something. We come up with that word spoof for the first time. And I think that 
brings forward one of the most important aspects of camp is that you are making fun of something that you also think is brilliant. Right, because like in the case of these movies, actually Busby Berkeley, the choreographer and sometimes director, was brilliant. There was, he was no a one genius. Like him. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. He's a genius. No one has ever been able to replicate what he did. And yet what he does is ridiculous. Yeah, it's I mean, it's ludicrous and preposterous. And that's what I think a lot of the essence of camp is tied into those two things coinciding at the same time. It's not the same as satire exactly. It has satirical elements because you are making fun of something, but you also love what you're making fun of. And you're honoring it and relishing it and putting it out there. And I think that's where you annoy the the generation before you is you're putting it out there to be praised and to be you know held up as something exemplary that they dismiss as being trash. And trash is a great camp word from that period as well. Trashy and campy and all those kinds of things. And kitschy. Kitschy Kitch was a great word. Kitschy was a great word that became something not a negative, it became a positive. No, I mean kitsch originally meant something that was just garbage that yeah was in the original worthless. yiddish it means yeah it's 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 a it's a throwaway and then people began filling their dorms with little kitsch figurines and kitsch pictures and betty boop clocks exactly and all that stuff from the thrift stores some of it became quite valuable like mm-hmm. uh, tiffany lamps and all that kind of stuff so that in a way brings us to dames at sea which i want to talk about and i know you saw the original production of dames at sea i did It isn't Jean Harlow, it isn't Greta Garbo, it's you, it's you, it's you. It's not Leslie Howard or even Noel Coward, it's you, it's you, it's you. It isn't Bert Wheeler, it isn't Ruby Keeler, no No one of them, no none of them will do. Not Claudette, or Carrie, Jack Benny, or Mary, it's you. Don't go away. There's more of Broadway Nation right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. 
Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. So this is a show that turns into another off-Broadway musical that becomes produced thousands and thousands of times all over the country that becomes entirely embraced by the mainstream. And uh, again, it was just one of those odd cultural things that no one expected it to be (laughs) practically a movement. But the essence of it is a bunch of gay guys getting together and making fun of these movies from the 1930s. Yeah, so Dames at Sea started at Cafe Chino, which was an off-off-Broadway... Maybe even two more offs in there. Yeah, friends, <laughs> offs as desired. And I didn't, I didn't see it there, and I never went to the Cafe Chino, but I gather it was actually a cafe where they would mount extended skits. And so I think Dames at Sea at that point was, it was only about one act long. I think it started as like a 15-minute piece and then they expanded into a, you know, 45 minutes or nearly an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it, you know, it became popular. It actually drew people to the Cafe Chino. And so... It ran 145 performances at the Cafe Chino, which is like the equivalent of running 10 years on Broadway, <laughs> <Yeah>. basically. <laughs> and then, yeah. of course, they thought, hmm, maybe there's actual money in this, not just camp money. And an audience beyond this camp gay audience that has been flocking there to see it. So I saw it when it opened at the Bowery Lane Theater. And it was just a very, very small theater, very narrow, and really not much stage space at all. And it was a very inexpensive production. But they made being inexpensive and cheap part of the camp. Well, in a way, isn't the camp of the show, the essence of the show, is that we're going to do these giant Busby Berkeley movies with six people and a dollar ninety-eight. Yeah, and the tiniest stage ever. Exactly. And that's the joke of it, in a way. And I actually think that's why almost no production of Dames at Sea has really, in recent times, has been successful, because they can't capture that essence of Dames at Sea. Just wait till the rain goes to follow those rainbows. Climb out of that wet So what was the essence? You sat in that audience, and I mean, from what I have read, people just fell off their chairs with laughter during the show. Yeah, it was honestly the funniest thing I had ever seen up to that point. Now, again, I was so ready for that, but I didn't know what Dames at Sea was going to be. I was on a school field trip from Ohio. This was my first time in New York. It was like to entertain the alums at Tavern on the Green, and one of the alums said, hey, I've got tickets for this off-off-Broadway show, Dames at Sea, do you want to go? So he gave us all tickets, and we went to see it. 
And it was so funny that I actually thought I might die because I couldn't breathe. I was laughing so hard because I'd never seen anything like it, anything that was... I'd seen a lot of things that had that sensibility, but not quite so concentrated. And again, I was from Ohio, so I hadn't gone to the Cafe Chino. I hadn't, you know, had that... Or been to the Ridiculous Theater Company or the and seen Charles Theater Ludlam Company. or any of those exactly. kinds of things that all this that's happening in the world at that particular moment. And again, I might have been a little bit enhanced with um, <laughs> whatnot, but so was everyone else in the audience. But Bernadette Peters had that, I'm sure a lot of you remember early to Bernadette Peters, and she still has this to some extent. She had the ability to just take the most antique songs and lines and do them absolutely sincerely so that at the same time you were laughing at how ridiculous they were and she was breaking your heart. It was like, you know, when she used to be on like the Merv Griffin show, she would sing a song like, What'll I Do? And just so soft and so wistfully, and then a little tear would come down her cheek. And I'm sure she learned how to do that in James at Sea, to cry on cue. I'm sure at the end of uh, It's Raining in My Heart, that tear started coming down yeah. her cheek every night. And all the songs were parodies of standard songs, basically, or songs from the Busby Berkeley musicals. From those Warner Brothers movies, those Harry Warren songs. Yeah, the same songs that ended up in 42nd Street. So, But instead of We're in the Money, there's a song called Wall Street. Yeah. And instead of uh, The Man I Love, there's that, that Mr. Man of Mine. Yeah. So they're very much uh, very specific songs that they are spoofing in the show. But they also, unlike some other wannabe Dames at Sea type shows, this one has really good songs. Really good songs. Uh, the people who wrote them obviously had watched these movies a million times. And so even though they never went on to write anything else of note, but they truly knew that style and they could replicate it and spoof it at the same time. Again, camp. They could honor it and make fun of it at the same time. Where's my umbrella? It's a perfect little gem of a piece, and the, and the script is very, very good. And in fact, I remember when I saw, and this may, this may offend some people, but when I saw 42nd Street the very first time, which was actually the very first performance of 42nd Street that ever happened, which I loved and it was sensational, but I remember thinking and saying to friends at the time, I wish the book to 42nd Street was as good as the book to Dames at Sea. Mm-hmm. And like the Fantastics or Jacques Brel, this is a show that then is replicated in every city in America. So there were thousands of productions of Dames at Sea over those next 10 years or so, spreading this idea mm -hmm. of camp across America. And so, Albert, do you think if there hadn't been a Dames at Sea, would we ever have had No, No, Nanette? Well, probably not, or maybe not at the same time. It just may, may have come along 
a little bit later. But I think the success of Dames at Sea had producers looking around for how can we do this but do it big. And they hit on No No Nanette, which had been like the huge hit of the 1920s. And, you know, instead of having someone play Ruby in Dames at Sea, they actually got Ruby Keeler <laughs> to appear in No No Nanette. You know, she was still alive. She hadn't done a show in years and years and years. She hadn't but made a movie in years, she hadn't much made less a movie. been on Broadway. I think she hadn't been on Broadway since the 1920s. Yeah, she was she went completely to retired. Yeah. But she was still had that lovable quality, and she made a big hit in the stage production. People loved her. And I think that points up the direct connection from, first of all, these the revival of these Busby Berkeley movies on TV and in the college film societies, and then through Dames at Sea to No No Nanette. Ruby Keeler is the connecting influence. Putting her on stage at that time was a gigantic coup because everybody had just fallen in love with her all over again through her movies. People had rediscovered her. And of course, they hired Busby Berkeley to direct and choreograph No No Nanette. It turned out that he was not up to that task. He had he was a little too old and not able to do that. But they ended up putting his name on the show as entire production supervised by Busby mm-hmm. Berkeley because he was a brand name that signified what that show was going to be about. It was going to bring these things together. It was going to be camp because it was going to honor this old show from the 1920s and also at the same time acknowledge its innocence, its ridiculousness, its silliness, whatever those elements were all going to be on stage together. But realize that you're a child, dear, and not too wise. So don't get wild, dear, when you can't have your own sweet way. I am oh so bored with my life. I am off to lead the high life. Has anybody got a cigarette? You'd better slow up until you grow up. You wait and see, I'll be the new Nanette. I will have a motor car and vintage wine and caviar and sables. And you ain't heard nothing yet. Don't be a fool, girl. You're just a schoolgirl. The most pretentious brat I ever met. And you are the biggest flat tire I ever met. And where are you going to get the money to do all those things? Just take a look at this. It's $200. No decent woman has $200. Where did you get it? None of your beeswax. You won't tell me? No. Then you can go fly a kite. No, no. Well, thank you, Albert, for joining us today and reminiscing about your uh, misgotten youth. (laughs) Thank you, David. In fact, producer Harry Rigby had taken note of all those masses of young people lining up around the block to see those vintage Busby Berkeley film festivals, and that directly inspired his vision of bringing Ruby Keeler, Busby Berkeley, and No No Nanette back to Broadway. Almost nobody else thought it would work. There's a fascinating book I highly recommend called The Making of No No Nanette, and it goes into all of the incredible backstage intrigue and drama that plagued the pre-Broadway journey of the show. But in great contrast to most Broadway books like that, this one ends with the show becoming wildly successful. It was by far the biggest hit of the season. Just three months later, the Stephen Sondheim-James Goldman musical Follies opened on Broadway, 
and on the surface it looked very much like another product of the nostalgia craze. Just like Nanette, it also featured aging Hollywood stars making triumphant returns to Broadway. They played the roles of former Ziegfeld Follies-type chorus girls and the men they had married. And like Dames at Sea, at least half of Folly's score consisted of new songs that lovingly imitated classic Broadway hits of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. But despite all of its opulent glamour and showbiz pizzazz, the plot and themes of Follies largely dealt with the failure of the American dream and the unrealistic expectations that those Silver Age songs had often produced. So it was really more of an anti-nostalgia musical. And opening in the thick of the nostalgia craze may have contributed to the very mixed reception that it got. Many people still contend that the original production of Follies was the greatest theatrical experience of their life. But many others were disappointed that it did not send them dancing out into the streets filled with joy the way No No Nanette had done. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Broadway produces a seemingly endless string of hit Silver Age revivals and expands the nostalgia craze into the 1950s with the smash hit Grease. Happy days are here again. The skies above are clear again. So let's sing a song of cheer again Happy days are here again Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you enjoy these podcasts, you could do me a big favor by subscribing, rating, and especially writing a quick review of the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please follow us on our Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram, where I often post photos, video, and more info about the shows that are profiled on each episode. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.